to the Idiom Broadcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. Now, as always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with RAC. RAC is a Grammy Award-winning musician and producer currently based in Portland, Oregon. He's fresh off releasing his third full-length album called Boy, an 18-track LP featuring collaborations with artists like Louis the Child and Jamie Liddell. He's also very well known for his remix work, gaining a Grammy nomination for his remix of Odessa's Say My Name, and winning a Grammy Award for his remix of Bob Moses' track, Tearing Me Up. Now, in this episode, we start off with RAC's background, discussing his upbringing in Portugal and his early experience with piano and guitars. We discuss how he found his first DAW in a cereal box and the album's worth of music that he created before graduating high school. We talk about his initial idea for the RAC project, which actually began as a collective remix artist, hence the name RAC or Remix Artist Collective. He discusses his unique vision for the project and how he made the pivot into releasing original music with it. Later on, RAC explains the driving forces for each of his three albums, along the way to stealing what he feels has helped him achieve his sustained success in the music industry. Now on the production side, RAC dives deep into his songwriting and technical workflows. He explains his refined production process that allows him to write fully polished demos in under two hours, the key components of his impressive home studio, and how boiling one of his microphones helps him achieve a more vintage sound. He also breaks down what his guitar rig and recording setup looks like, his favorite plugins for mixing, as well as his detailed approach to achieving simplicity in his writing. Later on, RSC explains his process for remote collaboration, which has become increasingly useful during the COVID pandemic. With that, he also explains how he and his team have adapted during the pandemic, questioning the norms of the music industry to help push and grow his career. RSC also explains his more recent projects, including his really creative approach to Twitch streaming, which anyone listening here should go check out, as well as his foray into cryptocurrency. Overall, at a really great time chatting with RAC, there's a lot that he has to share from his 10 plus years in the music industry. As you'll see, this is a bit of a longer episode, but trust me, you won't want to miss any minute of it. Now, as we slide into the interview, I'm going to pull you one of my favorite songs off of RAC's most recent album. It's a track called Passion, featuring Lord the Child. It's a really great track. I'll play it for you as you slide into the interview, so you can get a feel for his music and get excited for the episode. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM Podcast with RAC. Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Andre, who releases under the name RAC. Andre, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So you've got a really interesting background. There's a lot there, but I really want to dive into it. So to start, you can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd like to learn what initially got you into music and later on music production. Yeah. So I, I kind of had a long meandering path, but basically, mm-hmm. um, again, for context, like I grew up in Portugal and both my, so my mom's American, my dad's Portuguese. And I remember being really sort of torn in between both cultures and both languages. I actually struggled a lot, uh, with, with both languages. Like I, I'm, I'm fluent and bilingual now, but at the time I was, I was really confused and, and I have kind of this weird memory of, uh, like for a couple of years, I didn't speak 
to adults. It was like this weird <laughs> kind of thing as a kid. Anyway, yeah. it's, it, it, uh, th- I, I swear this is relevant, but basically, you know, I, I remember being really confused by the language and uh, it was around that time where I, I, I discovered music and, uh, and I felt like it was, it, it was a form of language. It, it was, a, it was an emotional language. It, it was a way to, to communicate that was maybe a little less judged, you know, mm-hmm. um, Again, this is all in hindsight. It's not something I really actively understood at the time, obviously. But for whatever reason, I was really drawn to it. And it really, sort of, I guess, to use a musical term, resonated with me. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, my parents, I think, recognized that. And they were like, okay, well, I was literally the only musical person in my family, by the way. So it's like, this is kind of a new thing. They're like, okay, let's, let's encourage this. They got me into piano lessons, which I hated. Uh, I was not, I did not enjoy that. Um, I think in hindsight, again, because it was like I was being forced to learn other people's songs. And, and again, mm. like going, coming from this perspective of like a sort of expressing yourself and I felt like interpreting other people's work wasn't that interesting. Again, funny in context of what I, uh, what <laughs> I do now, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that idea of, of like, uh, of just, you know, playing these very basic piano songs just wasn't that interesting to me. But around that time, you know, I, I took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, I, I didn't really progress very much. It was just kind of a thing. I think my parents were like, okay, you can do this thing, you know, learn mm-hmm. a skill. Uh, I think a lot of kids probably had that experience and then eventually drop off once their parents' dream dies out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think I was very interested in music still. Again, around that time, you know, growing up in Portugal, you know, this is a time where there was like two channels on TV. You know, there's a, a couple of radio stations. Uh, I, I I didn't come from a wealthy background, so like I didn't I couldn't buy music. Yeah. I would catch things here on the radio here and there, but for the most part, I was I was really drawn to the act of creation and expressing myself. So I, I just I, I really kind of honed in on that. And you know, fast forward a couple of years, um, you know, back when I was like maybe uh, ten or. 10, 11, 12. Yeah. Um, that's when I, I started to get into guitar and uh, I, I was really into Nirvana. I, uh, you know, these, these like bootleg cassettes that, <laughs> that my friends would get, you know, again, yeah. I couldn't, couldn't afford anything. Um, this little Walkman that I, that I had with bass boost, which is pretty sick. Um, <laughs> and then later got a mini disc too. That was, that was cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so I was, I was, I, I got into guitar. I was like, oh, this is much more my vibe. Like, I really like this. This is fun. I started recording like all these demos on my mini disc first, and even like a tape recorder. I had like a four track, and uh, it was I think maybe around eleven or twelve where I got my first computer, and then that's really when things kind of took off or so clicked for me. Yeah. So I uh, had this funny story where. I've actually tried to track this down. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy, but, but basically like I got uh, my first recording program out of a cereal box. So like a Portuguese cereal box, I think it was called uh, Shaka Beak. Uh, if anybody knows that or like some okay. knockoff version of that, whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's like a knockoff version of like Cocoa Puffs or something like that. So mm. I, <laughs> I, I got the, the CD in, in this, um, you know, in, in the cereal box and I popped it in. It was this program called, it was like a demo version of this program called hip hop EJ. Okay. Uh, it was extremely limited. Um, you could only record at 120 BPM. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, they had like a bunch of limited loops and, and things like that. 
but in in but they did have sort of a record function but it had one very big limitation which is that it would only give you like a, a click for the first four counts so it was like one two three four and then silence <laughs> and then so i had to record yeah. kind of hearing the rhythm in my head and actually really I think my sense of rhythm got really honed in early on from that. In fact, like when I record people, I'm like, you're off, you're off. Come on, get yeah. on. You know, it's like, like I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm pretty harsh about that stuff because I think rhythm is super important. So I, I you know, I, I got into that and uh, very primitive style of recording, but I recorded like probably like nine or 10 albums, like just worth of like all kinds of music and different things that I liked at the time. And some like, metal and like like some that were you know more electronic uh some yeah. that were more acoustic uh i just recorded all kinds of stuff like this is all instrumental by the way and mm. uh and at the same time i started playing in bands i put in this metal band when i was like probably like 16 or 17 mm. um which amazing by the way so much fun yeah. <laughs> that kind of music <laughs> uh especially as a teenager like perfect outlet for aggression um <laughs> and uh you know, so I think by the time I hit 18, I was like, okay, so, sort of finished high school, not really. And I was like, okay, I, I want to try to be a musician, professional musician. And that didn't work. Again, living in Portugal, you know, fast forward to, uh, I, I guess like two years of trying that, you know, living at home, that didn't work. Uh, and uh, I was, was, because I have an American passport, I, I, you know, I had the opportunity to go study in the US. So I, I, took that opportunity. And at first it was, I wanted to learn music production, I eventually switched to music, uh, music business, because okay. I think by that time I had already, I had already kind of developed, uh, like I was just ahead of like what they were teaching. Um, yeah. and, uh, cause I had just spent multiple years learning by myself, trial and error. And I had a couple of friends that had like mentors, people that had helped me along the way. And, 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 you know, by the time I was like 18, 19, I was working in Cubase, pirated version and uh <laughs> and uh and, and you know i i had sort of already knew my way around a recording program i had done i had sort of experimented enough that, that I, I knew the basics so that 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 recording program was very much for beginners and i was like okay i need to switch like this isn't yeah. working um and i switched to music business which that felt like more practical to some degree and in in a way to sort of broaden the scope of like things that i could do in the music industry you know yeah Okay, so I get to the school, and actually, it was right. It's my, I think my first, or right, right before the, the summer before I moved to school, to to college, I, I actually got my my first like proper like remix job, basically, and mm. uh, it was for this little band called Block Party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the time, they were little. To be fair, they, yeah. they, like they hadn't really become a, a, a staple, and. Um, and it was before their their first album, and I feel like I just got lucky. I kind of heard about them somehow, and I just reached out, and they're like, "Hey, uh, you know," I was like, "Can, can I do, you know, can I do a remix?" <laughs> uh, it's like I, I had done some remix competitions prior to that, so on this this website called Acid Planet, um, I had even I, I had entered a couple of remix competitions, and I, I felt kind of like it worked for my skill set. So I was like, I was pretty into that. I even got like runner up on, on a chemical bros, uh, oh, sweet. like, uh, remix competition. So I was like, I was pretty excited about that. And, uh, you know, then it was sort of something for the portfolio, you know, um, I had a little website and, uh, you know, I reached out to block party or, 
to their manager. It's funny because it was actually Vice Records, which now oh, is yeah. now Vice Network, the TV show, or the, the mm-hmm. you know, they have owned by CNN. But at the time, they had a record label. They maybe still do. I don't know. But they, they literally signed Block Party. So it was kind of crazy. You know, so that this is pre-RAC, by the way. So this yeah. is really just my first foray into into remixing. And I felt like I kind of had, uh, I was kind of good at it. I had like, maybe it, it felt natural to me. Um, I, I felt kind of equipped for it. And I was, I always thought, I was like, oh, maybe this, maybe this is a path for me. I don't know. It's not, not super common, but you know, in, in college I was in, I was also in, in a band and, you know, we kind of took that pretty seriously and we're trying to make that work, played a lot locally, did a lot of Midwestern tur- tours and things like that. And nothing ever mm-hmm. panned out sleeping in Walmart, uh, parking lots in a van, <laughs> you know, it's not like- exactly fun <laughs> driving, uh, you know, 10 hours to play in Arkansas for two people, you know, I, I've, I've put in my dues basically. And, uh, and it didn't, it didn't really pan out. And, uh, I guess like, so, so around that time, you know, because of this music business program, part of the deal was you do, uh, you know, you do a, an internship. And I was like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. How am I going to do an internship? So like, I literally reached out to everywhere. And I was like, oh no, like I need to start something on my own. Like this isn't like, I need to like, nobody's going to hand this to me, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and I've always been sort of entrepreneurial and it felt natural to sort of think about something that I could do in music. And, um, I, I knew that I wanted to do something in music. Like that was, that was very, very clear. So, okay. So I, I had this, uh, you know, with the experience of remixing Block Party, it's kind of funny because, like, but by that time, Block Party was a little bit more of a big deal. And, like, in college, like, people were like, oh, did you hear he remixed Block Party? You know, like kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like my calling card. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah cool. Sweet. <laughs> Sick. Sick, bro. You know, it's like, yeah. So it, it was, it, it, I felt like there was something there. You know, I was like, well, why not piggyback off of this and try to create something actually tangible and real, you know, mm-hmm. versus doing like a free remix for Block Party is like big deal, you know? So I, I had this idea, I was like, okay, well, what if I created a sort of business or this collective of, of remixers? You know, why don't I grab a bunch of friends, people that I've met along, along the way, um, talented remixers that I like, and why not create a sort of company or, or collective? And we do remixes for hire for labels, you know? It could be, it could be a pretty good income. We get to work with all kinds of people, be creative and, and, you know, kind of start our own thing, you know? And that was really the inception. And, um, I spent about, you know, this is before I even reached out to anybody else. I just spent like six months, um, you know, reaching out to various people. I actually did a bunch of bootleg stuff like for, for MIA and Madonna and like Nelly Furtado. Like, like uh, I basically got every acapella that I could get. I did like a bootleg remix of it just to basically have a portfolio to show, you know, what I could do and, you know, just to have something. And, you know, I spent six months reaching out to literally every label, every artist that I could possibly think of. And, and, uh, nobody, nobody got back to me. Shocking, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then I, I stumbled. I think I maybe saw on Pitchfork something. It's like uh, the Shins announcing a new album coming out in six months or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah. cool. I'll go check out their. You know, I was a big fan of the Shins, so I was like, cool. Let mm-hmm. me. Um, this might have been like late twenty or 2016. This is like two thousand six. Uh, it's yeah. a long time ago. Um, so I, I I reached out or I I went to the website and I noticed a phone number and I was like. This is weird. Why did they 
you know, it's like a, a phone number for their manager. You know, this is so uncommon and so rare. It just doesn't happen anymore. And so I, I was like, what the hell? I have nothing to lose. Like I, I, I've hit a wall everywhere else. Like nobody's replying to email. Yeah. We just call them up and <laughs> they answer or the, the manager answer, Ian Montone pretty well-known person yeah. in the music industry. And it picked up. I, I don't remember the call exactly because I was super nervous, but it was, I was just like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a remixer. Uh, I've done remixes. You know, it's kind of bullshit in my way a little bit. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I've done remixes for MIA and, <laughs> and Madonna. And like, he's like, okay, uh, send us your work and you know, I'll run it by the guys. I was like, sick. This is amazing. This is cool. And, uh, you know, I didn't hear back for maybe a week or two. And uh, I was actually in a class and this is a small school. So it's like, you're not supposed to leave class, you know, they take attendance, yeah. like that kind of a thing. <laughs> and, and I was in some kind of math class and my, my flip phone, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> goes off and it's this New York number. And it, I was like, Oh, that's, it's, it's the manager. I was like, Oh shit. I need to like, I need yeah. to, I need to get, the, I need to take this. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to take this. And everybody was like, what? <laughs> like, like who does that? You know? And I, I leave the call and, you know, go out in the hallway and he's like, yeah. So I talked to the guys and, you know, they're down to give you a try, like whatever, you know, send, I'll, I'll shoot you back an email and we'll go from there. And then, you know, suddenly I, I was working on, you know, a remix for the shins, like one of my favorite bands and, and yeah. working for sub pop records, you know, like literally one of the coolest labels out there. And, and, uh, you know, suddenly I had this like massive opportunity and, um, it's funny cause they actually, uh, it, this is over email, but they asked me, uh, it's like, are you willing to do it on spec? And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> uh, again, for the, for those that don't know what that is, it just means you do it for free. And if they like it, they pay for it. Um, yeah. so it, it's, I'd actually argue against doing that, but like at the time, you know, I did it, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that, that was that. So, uh, I guess like. I, I, I saw this as a massive opportunity. It's like my first real opportunity and I took it really seriously. Mm-hmm. I spent about two weeks working on it. Um, tirelessly. I, I, uh, the school fortunately had a bunch of studios. Um, not that I really needed a studio, but cause I was really self-sufficient. I could do everything on a laptop at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wasn't even much of a hardware guy at all, but the studio had some mini mogs and like stuff like that. So it's like, okay, cool. cool. Um, that's some nice mics, they had some Neumanns and like, so I was like, okay, I, uh, I mean, I'm paying for this. I might as well use it. Right. And, uh, so, you know, I spent a lot of nights, sleepless nights working on this. Um, I used a lot of acoustic instruments. I, I, I was like, I'm not going to do a dance remix. This is not appropriate for the shins. Uh, you know, I, I, I used like a lot of, um, uh, for example, I got my, my, well, girlfriend at the time, a wife now, um, she sang a bunch of harmonies on it. Uh, I, I really wanted to do like, I, again, like the, this is all in hindsight, but at the time I was like, I want to do something that they would love. So I did a bunch of research on like, what kind of, what kind of bands are they into? Like, wh- what are their contemporaries? Like, I, I was sort of thinking about it from that perspective is like, how do I do justice to this song in a way that they would appreciate it? Let yeah. me add a chord change here that they're like, Oh, interesting you know mm-hmm. uh, like let me do this for them not for the label because the label's probably just asking for a dance remix you know yeah and i was like i don't want to do that that's not interesting <laughs> there's a million mm-hmm. people that can do that and probably do it better to be honest and and like that's not really a niche that i want to carve for myself so i did that i took a little bit of a chance there um i was actually kind of like if they came back and they were like mm, no i'm going to dance thing i was probably willing to redo it you know yeah um but 
fortunately that that bet kind of paid off and and they loved it they they really liked it um and i had this sort of one incredible thing happen which was um this is a couple months later but ian ian montone hit me up again or his assistant or whatever it was like hey do you want to do you want to come to the show the guys are playing in st louis and I was like, sick. Yeah, of course I want to meet the shins. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like 22 years old, you know? Uh, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to meet the shins. And he was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll give you a plus one. And I was so green that I was like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> what's a plus one? Yeah. And they're like, oh, ha ha, that's funny. <laughs> you know, I was like, I still don't know what it is, but sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, I went to the show and, um, you know, I, I, I got to meet the band and they were so nice and like, just, I, and, and, um, something kind of incredible happened, which is that, um, James, you know, kind of turned to me and, and, and said something along the lines is like, you know, I actually liked it better than what we did. And I was like, Oh wow. Okay. It, again, in hindsight, I, I think that perhaps that was him seeing like a, a young person really motivated really green being like hey let me motivate this person you know yeah and 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 maybe there was i I don't mean to say he was insincere but like uh in hindsight i I just really appreciated that because that was that was sort of like this crazy validating moment where i was like oh no this is like i'm on the right track here especially in the space of how many different things that you've tried to make work in music with the bands you know taking two years before college to try to get things to work a lot of people on this podcast have similar moments where they were able to kind of jump off that first success that says, Hey, you belong here. And mm-hmm. that was coming from, you know, an industry legend in the shins. Yeah. 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 So like hearing that from somebody that, I mean, they were, I, this was the third album. So they had released like two like seminal records at this point, you know, they were like, they were not small, you know, Yeah. and they were playing the pageant sold out like, like, I don't know, 3000 people or something like that. It was, you know, pretty real. And, um, and St. Louis is a tough music town too. So like, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they were not small. And, and, and just hearing that really, uh, you know, motivated me. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm onto something, you know? And, mm-hmm. and after so many years of failure, it was like, okay, this is my thing. This is, this is, I'm going to devote as much time as I possibly can to this because I'm onto something. Yeah. And, and Hey, if it fails, fails. But like, uh, the, the, the truth is that it never really slowed down. Ever since then, it's just been this wild ride for 13 years at this point. And, um, you know, just kind of doing, I mean, we, we can get into all of that uh, later, but like, yeah, just so many different, yeah. uh, it's, it's sort of morphed into so many different things well beyond anything that I could possibly imagine, you know? So you had that first remix with the shins kind of walk me through the buildup of what the Remix Artist Collective was RAC, and then how that kind of simplified to mostly just you manning the front of it. Yeah, so I, um, again, the, that whole idea of like having a collective, having multiple people involved, it just it just uh, resonated with me. What <laughs> uh, <laughs> of the day. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, and it, it just, like, I guess like, I've always been sort of a reluctant front man for this. I, 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 I liked... I like to be surrounded by people and it, it brings power to it. It's, I, I don't like to be at the center of it, even though it's kind of hilarious now, but, um, I, I like to be creative and, and be in the weeds, but I, I don't, sometimes I don't love being the face of it. But, uh, so at the time I was like, okay, let me bring in these friends, people I had met over the years, uh, talented remixers and whatnot. But I kept, I kept running into this issue. Um, whereas that, you know, I, I was the one really sort of, 
pushing this project forward, you know, and I was, I was, I was the one talking to labels and people and I was yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to get my friend to remix it. And they're like, ah, yeah, about that. <laughs> yeah. So we want you to do it. We like what you did over here. Um, so yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to have you do it. How about that? And I was like, I mean, I'm not mad because you're paying me, but you really have all the leverage here. So I really don't have much sway. So I, you know, it was just, I kept hitting that wall where it's like, yeah. You know, the other guys, you know, the, their talents didn't great. Like it, it was, it, I think they had the talent to pull it off, but it was sort of like, just, I, I couldn't get over that first hump with, with yeah. a lot of people. And, um, and yeah, I think people just always wanted me to do it. And, you know, there, there were other guys that were involved, like more specifically like Andrew Mori and, and Carl Kling were probably the most prominent members. Uh, Carl being a very active touring member, I think for almost 10 years, uh, uh, on the DJing and the live band. Um, and we've collaborated on songwriting as well. And Andrew mixed both of my, f- my first records, uh, both strangers and ego. And, uh, he's a very prominent, uh, super talented, uh, record mixer, uh, up there with the best of them. And, and, uh, you know, it just got, it just got to a point, I think it was a couple years in where we were, I kept trying to make that work like the collective thing. And, it just got to a point, especially as I was like thinking about original work, it was like, Hey guys, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take this on myself. I think yeah. that makes more sense. And they were like a hundred percent. Yes. It yeah. does. It, it's <laughs> wasn't it's, this big breakup story. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. It wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't the, uh, it was the moment in almost famous, like where they're like, just like yeah. arguing in the, in the green room. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was actually very boring and very non-eventful through email, you know, just like talking it out. I was like, no, that makes sense. You know? Yeah. It, it, Cause it always, it really was my baby. And, um, you know, I, there was no harsh feelings. And, and, and to some extent, the, the spirit of the collective, in a sense, has always continued on because I always collaborate with various people and it's not, it's never just me, you know, um, there's always a lot of people involved. So I think to some degree that collective spirit is there, just maybe not in such an official capacity, I guess. So you said that you kind of wanted to focus this as being more of your project so that you could start working on some original music. So mm-hmm. what was that first release that you had with the RAC brand? Yeah. So, uh, you know, th- I was like multiple years into this. I was like three or three or four years into it. I had a very successful touring career. I toured most continents at this point. Um, you know, it was, it was great. It was, it was fun, but it was all based around remixes. And I, I had sort of always been itching to do more original work. And I always thought, I was like, oh, I'll just do original work under my own name, under a different name. It doesn't make sense. I always got hung up on the, because of the name RAC, because it's yeah. implied in the name. It was like remix artist, you know. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, no, I'm going to, uh, I'll start like another project for my original work. And the more I got into it, it was like, actually, it doesn't matter. It, it's just <laughs> like, yeah. I, I know that some people like don't like this, to use this word of a brand, but it kind of, that's kind of what it is. You, you build this reputation really is what we're talking about. Yeah. And in a recognition and an awareness around this, these three letters and like, why would I start over? Like that's, you know, it's, yeah. I, I was so deep into it at that point. And, and there was sort of uh maybe a seal of quality perhaps, or like the people that knew that, that acronym knew what kind of music that I made. So I feel like why not tap into that audience and, and create something of my own. And on the plus side, I had developed a network of artists and musicians through remixing over the years anyway. So I was like, this makes a lot of sense. But with that said, I wasn't really that ambitious with it at first. I was actually, I thought it would just be a supplement to my DJ career where I was like, okay, let me get, um, 
it's funny because one of the one of the first well i i reached out to a lot of people but um i remember thinking like oh maybe i'll get like chris glover or Pe- penguin prison to do like you know like a house music vocal on this and there'll be like yeah. a sick like dance track for 12 inch or something you know um again because i had sort of moved a little bit into dance music because of djing um and it just what it like the second that i started to sit down and write music nothing like that came out it was all like mid-tempo maybe a little bit upbeat like pop music and again sort of just trusting my instincts and just feeling it out is like i guess maybe this is the direction i don't know like this feels right um i'm not faking it this is what's naturally coming out um and i'm really liking what's coming out i i basically worked on a bunch of instrumental demos i was like okay let me start to piece something together uh and I started to reach out to a bunch of artists, friends, people that I had worked with in the past, people that I had successful remixes with, for example. And the first one was Kelly from Block Party. And mm-hmm. I just hit him up and and he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, oh, wow, that was easy. <laughs> uh, all I had to do was ask. Because like, suddenly I have this like amazing, super talented, one of my favorite artists of all time is now, at least on paper, agreed to work on a song with me. And... Like to, to give him a ton of credit is that um, once he was attached to it, I mean, it was so easy to get everybody else because yeah. like that, that seal of quality or whatever of him being like, I'm, I'm going to work with this person. This person is legit. That yeah. to me just opened the floodgates. And, um, you know, I was able to get like all the other people on the album because of that. So I, I really owe a lot to him on that. And uh, it's funny because I wasn't even thinking that would be the single. I actually didn't want that song to be the single, which is hilarious in hindsight because it's probably one of my more successful songs. But um, I always felt like it was kind of slow and wasn't that poppy. But clearly, I was wrong. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so so. But again, just for context, uh, I did technically put out a single in the midst of writing all that stuff. Uh, there was the uh, a song came out first, which was a song that I did with with Penguin Prison called Hollywood, and that one that one came out in 2012. That was like through a it's actually kind of funny. It was like a record label that was funded by Mountain Dew, <laughs> but it <laughs> Why was not? It, it, yeah, I know it sounds super weird, but it was yeah. the label was actually run by Complex um, Magazine, so yeah. they were actually pretty legit, and uh, that's actually what sold me on it. it. wasn't Mountain Dew was just funding it, so um, so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take your money, and uh, yeah. And, and they put a lot of effort into it and and they really sort of gave me that first push. Yeah, we had like billboards during South by Southwest and like all this stuff. It was actually kind of wild. Yeah. So it was my first little foray into, into the original world. And uh, little did I know that that would take over my life for really. Ever. Yeah. So you put out Strangers 16 track album. When you released that, were you thinking, okay, I'm going to become this like album original driven artist or were you kind of like, how are you doing with balancing the originals versus, versus what got you to that point in the, all the remixing? Well, um, you know, at, at that point I was already starting to get a little bit burnt out on remixing. So yeah. it, it was, it was already a welcome change to be honest. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I go through phases of that. I think that's pretty normal, you know, um, where it gets less and less interesting and then I get back into it, you know, but with the original work, it was, I mean, it, it's not, writing music is not that different from remixing, you know, it's maybe just a different starting point perhaps. Um, but so I basically wrote all this entire album in a vacuum. I wrote it all myself without ever talking to any labels or anything. And then when it was done, then we started shopping it around and, you know, Interscope was like, Hey, we want to sign you. It was like, Oh, (laughs) well that was easy. Um, yeah. 
cool. Um, you know, I was kind of naive. <laughs> I was like, yeah. major label? Sure. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that was a good and bad experience. Um, we can get into that. But, like, uh, you, you know, it, it was, uh, again, I, I think... I think just maybe trusting my instincts. It was very pop friendly. I, I always felt like it was a very accessible album, but still my whole approach to that with that first album was like, let me, let me do pop structure. So, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, maybe yeah. key change, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but do, um, you know, but, but do it with like substance or, or be as creative around that. So like, modular synths you know uh add weird sounds or like be be as creative around that so it still yeah. works in that format where people are like oh it's a pop song but like i'm still being creatively fulfilled so that was sort of how i decided to find the balance of commercial versus creative you know um which you can always lean one to one side or another, but that that was a nice balance for me where I felt super good about everything that I was doing, but still felt fulfilled. Um, it didn't feel like I was selling out or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's one of the biggest struggles that pretty much every artist has. It's like this balance between making music for myself and making music that sells and like mm -hmm. finding what's the comfortable um, split for them. Like where do they right. want to be on that spectrum? Right. There, there's sort of this meme that's going around now, which is like a Venn diagram of like, uh, like music I like, music that sells, and then everywhere else is music that I make, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that too, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's tricky thing. And like, I, I again, like, uh, maybe I just kind of lucked out, but the way that I found that balance was, was by basically taking the structure of pop music and, and just not changing that and just playing with everything around that. And I had so much fun with it. It was like, it was still, yeah. um, it, it's, it's crazy to think about the album now because it's just been so many years and, um, you know, it's, it's certainly changed my life obviously. Mm -hmm. and, and like it, uh, it, it really sort of, you know, that I feel like that really kickstarted my career in, on, into another level that I didn't anticipate that I don't think the remixes could have ever really taken me. So, um, yeah. I look back on it pretty fondly and I'm still super proud of it. You know, uh, mm -hmm. even if I'm a little detached from the material at this point, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that I would, it's not like I, I'm like, Oh, I would do it differently, but it's like, there's different choices that I would make now, you know, but that's, yeah. I think that's pretty normal. So kind of on that strangers, your first album and then ego, your second album album. So with strangers, you said your approach was how can I play around within a pop structure? How did that stay the same or change when it came to your second album? one of the main changes was sort of the way that I wrote music, uh, in, in that. So, uh, just for context, like on strangers, I, 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 well, I called it strangers because I haven't, I still to this day, haven't met a lot of the people that I worked on, by the way, it's <laughs> kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um, but the whole idea was like, I'm going to sit in a room and write 50 demos, 50 or 60 demos. And then I'm going to send it to a bunch of people and see what I get back. Like, I'm not going to sit in the room and write with them. Like, yeah. that's kind of short-sighted. Like, I, I um, which kind of is very relevant to COVID times, actually. Um, True. <laughs> but uh, I, that, that's really not the norm. You know, most people like to get in a room and write. And I, I was like, no, take as much, take two weeks, write a song. You know, like, spend spend time on it. Hone the, hone the lyrics in. Uh, like, be as creative as you want. Send me as many ideas as you want. Let's We'll work on it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that slower, more methodical process, like there's no rush. 
we're just taking as long as it needs to write this and be as creative as possible and also get as much material as I possibly can. So, you know, an album of 16, an album with 16 tracks really had like 40 tracks because I just cut a whole bunch out, you know, that didn't make it. And that's, that's, so that was sort of my process for the first one. And the second one, it was still true, except that I, a lot of it was actually written in the same room with a lot of people. So it was, it wasn't rushed or anything like that. We, we just kind of did a lot of the same things, but in the same room. Yeah. So I, it, it has a little, I feel it has a little bit of a different feel just because uh, I feel like there's more input from other people, really. Yeah. Uh, it, it was less like, like, especially on the instrumental side, like when, uh, on strangers it was like all me really instrumentally i mean there's a couple of people that played some drums and stuff on it but uh yeah. other things like uh maybe a couple of different other parts um but uh you know ego was a lot more collaborative in that sense and it was kind of nice mm-hmm. to to separate a little bit and work with you know like rossum uh you know other very talented producer and uh like you know a lot lots of other people and i feel i feel like the k-fly track is more based on something she wrote versus something I wrote. And it was kind of fun to sort of approach it that way, kind of backwards, more remixy in a way. So it, yeah, it, it was just different, but I, I also, um, it's classic, like sophomore album, you know, like yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do a one hour album all interconnected, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I love by the way. And I love doing that because it's so, it's so like, um, self-serving and, um, and like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I just love that I could do that. Basically, yeah. it, it's sort of like the director's cut. You know, it's like I want to do this, and I'm going to do it, and you know, whatever, I don't care. So, yeah, like I, I remember like going to Spotify and showing them the album, and I was like telling them about like how it's all one continuous album, and uh, like every song bleeds into the next, and it's like literally exactly like one hour long, like six. 60 minutes to the dot and uh yeah and they were like oh cool it'll work great for playlisting i'm like oh, great <laughs> <laughs> um i i mean to be honest they actually supported it quite a bit and you know that didn't really stop them but it was it was, it was just kind of a it's like it was like oh well it doesn't really fit into our format you know so um but again like i called the whole i called the album ego because i was trying to it was me discovering who I am as an artist, you know, cause like throughout this whole period of time doing remixes, it's all derivative work. I'm working off of other people's stuff and maybe there's a sound that emerged, but it wasn't like something that I, I was like intentional, super yeah. like, it's like, Oh, this is my vision. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, it was more in service to the original song. And, um, and strangers was like the first foray into that it was like, like, who am I? Like, what do I have to say? What's my contribution to the world? And ego was very much a continuation of that, probably a lot more so. And in the latest album, Boys, very much along those lines, you know? Yeah. So kind of on that, how was setting up and kind of building up your album, Boy, different from what came before it? Because I think in general, your albums are so collaborative and I think you have such a wide range of both kind of new and young artists on that. So how did that differ from how you kind of built up those previous two? Yeah, so... um, this this one was actually a lot more back to the original formula of strangers of me just sitting in a room writing a whole bunch of demos on my own and then working with people uh after and i think i probably have i think i probably got maybe 45 i think 45 or 50 songs that came out of all of that so maybe okay Mm -hmm. like 60 instrumentals and 45 songs with vocals and so a, a lot got left you know i had to cut out 
uh, and that's not that's never a pleasant thing to do but I, I think that's what it takes so so you know like there, there's sort of a reason behind that is like i especially now i like a boy like i wanted to find a cohesive theme the only way i could do that is by like sitting in a room and in with my thoughts by myself and just writing and writing and writing and i spent like six months doing that uh writing almost like a demo a day and, and just writing a ton of stuff and 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 then you know fine-tuning different things and so it's just so i could have like a pretty solid demo that I could send out to various people. So, so there's room for them to explore, but it's still rooted in like my core idea. Yeah. So it was maybe a little bit selfish, but not really. Uh, <laughs> but, but just, you know, so the, the theme that I kept coming back to and to, to bring this full circle yeah. is that I kept going back to my childhood because it was, that's why it's called boy, obviously. And, um, I, I found this, uh, like that period of my life, like where I didn't have access to music. I, I like, I discovered the Beatles when I was like 12, you know, like things like that. Like yeah. I, I, I was sort of, I just, I liked music for music. There was nobody telling me what was good, what was bad. And, and I was writing stuff that just felt right. And, and yeah. I, I kept going back to that time period as, as like a really positive and sort of innocent time. And, you know, I was just sort of writing melodies that, that reminded me of that. And basically anytime that, um, I wrote a melody that took me to that place, that's was like, okay, this is, um, this is it. This is, I'm onto yeah. this. Like, this is, I should lean into this. So I, I think the whole album has this like real sort of n- nostalgic feel even, I mean, maybe some of that's through the sounds, through the instrumentation. Um, but it's, 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 it's sort of a, an exploration of that period of my life, I guess. And, uh, and, and the way that that comes through in collaboration is because I literally have this conversation with everybody that I work with. So, so it's, you know, we'll spend like three hours just <laughs> talking about childhood and life and not, yeah. not just me talking about myself. I mean, like, you know, sharing <laughs> stories and, and about getting into music and, and, you know, we find some common ground and that eventually ends up feeding into the music. And, and that's sort of what a lot of the lyrics stem from. And, uh, you know, so it ends up being less about my childhood, but about childhood in general and, and, and about that shared experience, which is obviously different for everybody. But, uh, you know, I wanted that to be sort of the cohesive theme of the record. And yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm super proud of it. It's, it's sort of like, I, I, I like, I, I didn't really mention this, but I actually spent a year and a half working I wrote actually like another album uh, after Ego and then decided to throw it away because mm-hmm. it wasn't, I just didn't feel like it was good. <laughs> right? like, like it just wasn't, um, it just was, yeah, it, that was painful, but it was also like, oh, I just didn't feel right. Like I can't, yeah. I can't with a straight face go out in the world and be like, this is my new album, you know? And not that all of it was bad. It was just, it didn't feel very relevant to me and I was sort of disconnected from it. And, uh, so, but I sort of consider that as part of the process. That's what it takes. Um, if, if you want to write, uh, uh, and again, this is my view, but if you want to write an album with longevity, uh, that, that has impact and that means something to somebody, I, I think you really have to put in that amount of work. And that's the only way that I know how to do it. And that's basically how, how I've approached yeah. this stuff. Sweet. So with that, let's kind of slide things away from your background and into production. So I really want to hear what you've got going on now with production and based off your Twitch streams, you've got a studio that I wish I had. So I want to dive into all of that. But before that, I feel like it'd be fun to kind of hear what the 
2008 Greenville, Illinois RAC mm. setup was. You said you were working on your laptop, but it'd be cool to kind of hear where it came from once you started to get this career moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's just to tie it together with Twitch. So I, I actually have um, uh, like people ask me, "Is like, oh, how much did that cost?" And yeah. my answer is twenty years of experience, like <laughs> because it's not about the money. I mean, yeah. obviously that's a big part of it, but most of my equipment was collected over years and years and years. It wasn't like something I didn't go to guitar center and buy all this stuff. First yeah. of all, you can't even get it at a guitar center. But my point is, you know, like it, it was collected over a lot of years. So. Yeah, 2000, 2008 setup, I used a Windows PC. No, 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 I, I was actually, I had like one of those white MacBooks, the iBooks or whatever. I was using one yeah. of those. I think it was on Mac by then. Uh, I was using, early on, I was actually still, <laughs> whatever, it doesn't matter at this point. I was still using a pirated version of Cubase. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like quickly switched to Ableton, and I, I've been a paying, paying member. Of, uh, I've paid for Ableton ever since. <laughs> um to to be to be upfront but, but yeah. basically like i uh yeah i was using cubase uh, i had a, a an ibook and i had an m audio firewire sound card it was like two inputs it had like one mic input and and two like line inputs yeah. very basic i mean uh, yeah very simple setup mostly through software um yeah. in terms of synths and drums and all of that I would record a lot of stuff with microphones and it was just whatever I had around most of it through like a 58, um, or whatever I had around. I, I kind of mentioned this, like the school had some nice mics that every once in a while I could borrow and, and use them in the studios, but I couldn't like, I record yeah. a lot of the stuff in my dorm room, by the way. Um, like in between my roommates coming in and out, you know, late at night, I would just like be recording with headphones. Uh, and yeah, I, I, uh, I think that was like kind of it. I like I I I've, I have this sort of methodology where I, I this isn't a knock against samples, by the way, because like some people get angry when I say this, but but like I, I prefer not to use samples at all. I, I I like the craft of creating everything from scratch. Like it's just it's part of the process that I love. So um, yeah. so I've just always chosen to do everything from scratch, including drums, like everything. Like uh, I mean, I'll I'll sample like a like like a drum machine, but it's still, it's still my own sample. You know what I mean? Is that really the same as how you approach it today? Yeah. Still, still to this day, I, 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 I still prefer to start everything from scratch. And, uh, you know, I sort of have like various, various instruments that are sort of all ready to go. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I get into that. So, um, I guess like, you know, two, 2000, you know, 2008, suddenly I'm working professionally. I'm like, okay, I need to like up my game at least a little bit. And, and by the way, in, in, in 2008, um, I'm, I'm now randomly working for HBO, writing music yeah. for Entourage. And uh, so suddenly I'm working on t in, t in TV as well. And like, uh, I, I even did like a movie soundtrack a year later, like all this stuff was like, okay, like I really need to upgrade my system. Like this isn't <laughs> you know <Yeah>. like, <laughs> like, like I can't be doing the, the iBook or, you know, I think yeah. by then maybe a MacBook, uh, I need to up my game a little bit. So it was actually in college, I think maybe two, 2008, I bought my first synth, which was a Roland Juno 60. I, I bought it off of a friend in college. There just happened to be one, like my friend was selling it. And uh, I bought it for 450 bucks, which I think is hilarious because it's easily Ooh. worth two grand now. And it's it's still my favorite synth. I use it on literally every track. Um, and uh, I 
you know, I, I got that. And that was sort of my first foray into, uh, into analog or analog synths and, and hardware synths, really. I'm not like an analog yeah. purist or anything like that, but I do like physical synths. I, I like knobs and like moving things manually. Like it's just more fun for me. It's not from a, like a purist kind of like, oh, it sounds better. You know, it's more just like yeah. a practical thing. Uh, I feel like I, I personally get a better performance out of it that, that I, I prefer. So like, that's, that's sort of my, my approach to that. And yeah. uh, speaking of uh, sort of, you know, we were talking about Carl Kling, like he, he actually was very into synths as well. So we were kind of like, you know, pushing each other in that direction. And, and uh, um, we even had our own like kind of synth, synth based project called the pragmatic. And uh, we, you know, we were, we got very into that and uh, I was, uh, you know, I got sort of into collecting synths, and um, my second one was a Korg MS-10, which is not the MS-20. It's the one oscillator version, which I actually like better. Uh, hot take. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I like. You know, it's it was it's made in like 70, oh, 70 I think this one came out in seventy eight or something, and I I just love the simplicity of it. It's one oscillator, one filter, one ADSR. It's so basic, but it sounds so good. And it's just yeah. like, there's sort of this immediacy to it. There's no presets. There's no, there's something that's really nice about it. And um, again, it's, it, I think it helped in, in, in that honing in, like, like the, the, we can get kind of get into this later, but like basically this idea of, uh, uh, of honing in on simplicity on a couple key ideas that make sense and, and, and sticking to that. And, and this is sort of a, like a mantra I have for, for songwriting in general, but, yeah. but um, yeah, just to get into the kind of the music production side of it, I, you know, I just mm-hmm. slowly over time just started buying gear and started accumulating stuff until I basically just fill up a room. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know, the, yeah. the, the wonderful thing about being a professional musician is that it's all a tax write off. So it's like, it's like, it's, it's a business expense and it's very yeah. easy to get in that, that, you know, gear acquisition syndrome where you're like, mm-hmm. I want this, I need this. When yeah. in reality, do you really No, Not really. But, but you know, I, I basically, I've really gotten to a point where uh, I really haven't bought any significant amount of gear in the past couple of years. I'm like, I'm pretty stoked about what I have currently. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe there's a like Deckard's dream or something like that, that I'm like, Oh, I want that. Or, yeah. Like I've always wanted an ARP 2600 or whatever, but for the most part, I have everything I need. I don't like another guitar isn't going to help me. You know, um, mm-hmm. I have every flavor of amplifier that I need. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. uh, th- there comes a point where it's a bit too much and it just becomes sort of, uh, I don't know. It's it, the, the diminishing returns, I guess is the idea. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've sort of stayed pretty consistent with my, with my current setup and, um, early on, I, 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 you know, because I was doing all this remixing work at the same time, I, I honed in on this method of, of, uh, I mean, not that this is that new, but like, but basically having everything hooked up, getting a sound card with like as many inputs as possible yeah. and having an input set up, always ready to go with every instrument. So, so there's no cables, there's no MIDI routing. It's just like ready to go. As soon as you have an idea in your head, you're like, I want it on the roads. Let me go to the roads. It's good, yeah. good to go. All I have to do is turn it on. It's good to go. Um, and, uh, and it's already, it has this track ready to go with an Ableton. Um, you know, there's no fussing around with, with cables or anything. It's just, yeah. it, 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 it's like, how fast can I get from the idea to the recording? And, yeah. and that, that approach came a bit out of necessity because I have deadlines with the remixes. I'm trying to maximize the amount of remixes I'm doing. 
you know, so I literally, I'm, I, I also developed a bit of a reputation of doing things very quickly. So people were like, Hey, we need a remix. Um, and they were like, how's two weeks? I'm like, I'll give you two in one, you know? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not that insane anymore about it, but, uh, but I, I really did that early on to get sort of a leg up on, on the competition. And I think it helped. Um, and you know, th- that has developed over the years, that sort of method of, so basically I have, it's kind of ridiculous setup at this point where <laughs> I have like four Apollos with just every input. And then I have a whole bunch of other stuff running through ADAT from the other side of the room. So I have like basically like a sound card for every single section of the room. And they're all being piped over ADAT because it's, you know, a toss link cable. Yeah. Um, it's very, uh, very efficient in, in terms of uh, you can get a lot of channels per size of cable, you know, it's just a, um, and you know, that's all running piping into the Apollos and again, like I just have a track ready for everything. You know, I have a bunch of outboard gear, a bunch of compressors, things like that, which I, I'm using less and less these days, but, uh, yeah, I basically have like an input for like literally every synth that I have in this room, which is kind of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I, I just like that I can like if I wanted to, if I have an idea for a sick baseline, I just go over to the the mini moke and and you know the MIDI's good to go. I just plug it in on on the computer, you know, on, on a on an Ableton. It's already being piped in over to the mini moke, yeah. and I just go and like play with the filter as I record it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of my approach to it. Um, we could definitely get into more in the weeds, but I don't know. Maybe that's just kind of a general overview. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think one thing kind of jumping off of that is it sounds like, you know, media C is really important to you for your workflow. Yeah. Because you're so productive within the studio, it'd be cool to hear kind of like what your typical starting process is like. So it sounds like you've got an idea, you kind of run in and get something down. But in general, what do those first two, three hours look like for you to get the bare bones of a instrumental out? Yeah. So um, I, I put in I put in a lot of legwork into a template. Uh, and this is something that I, I sort of preach yeah. uh, because it, it's helped me so much. Um, I mean, if you think about how many times, I mean, I don't know what you do or, or, or if anybody is listening, I don't know how they do it. But if you're, if you're having to mix drums, if you had to create group tracks for drums or for whatever, for this, like, like you're doing that every single time. I mean, like, yeah. like get, get, think about like sort of the basic level stuff that you need to do and, and just fine tune it from there. And it's it's to a point where I can I can basically load up a template and it's pretty heavy because I literally have you know like like my template has I think 150 tracks or something like that you know it's it's not it's not for the yeah. faint of heart but but again like all the tracks are ready to go they're sort of pre-compressed pre-EQ to some extent um, you know everything's sort of generally balanced you know I'm always going to go and fine tune everything of course it's not like it's not like a a, ma- a magic thing where the song comes out mixed. But yeah. you can get there faster by with a template, and and it's actually kind of serves uh, another function, which is that you know you're not always inspired when you go in the studio. So th- what what I like to do uh, when I'm not you know when I'm not feeling particularly creative that day, if I'm hitting a wall, yeah. I'll just I'll work on the technical side. I'll, I'll fine tune. It's like oh, it's like oh, I keep doing that manually. Let me automate this. You know, um, yeah. So I, I created like a whole basically my own little tools and plugins. I have this, like, uh, I call it the REC multi-tool and, and it's sort of built in, um, low pass filters, high pass filters with on one knob, 
which actually, so at zero, it's actually turned off. It's kind of like turning on like an old stereo, you know, yeah. when, you, when you switch it on and then it actually activates it. So, but at zero, it actually, uh, it's, it's in the off mode. So it's actually not using a whole lot of CPU. So again, like, like creating like efficient little tools like that, um, you know, it's like, well, if I want to add a filter, I just quickly go to my tool. I don't have to add auto filter and then set the, set the right, you know, channel of automation yeah. to the, to the, the frequency and make sure that the curve is right. You know, it, it's more like it's, it's a tool that's suited for me personally. I've spent the time to develop that myself and it saves me so much time to the point where again, I'm, I'm, I am getting to your question, but, but basically <laughs> like, where, uh, the, the, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, starting a track and I can have a f- pretty well polished demo easily in an hour and a half, like no problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that just comes a time there, there, there's some, the, the more intangible side of it is just experience yeah. of writing the more you do it, the easier it gets, you know, it's, it shouldn't be getting harder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, but supplemented by the technical side of it. So where you're, you're making the technology work for you and, and for yeah. what you want to do. So it, it's, it's a very tailored system for me. Uh, like if I, my routing behind my, my, cause I have racks and racks stuff and like yeah. my routing is insane. If, if I have to like, tear this apart it's going to take me like a week or two to get back into like even close to being where i have it dialed in right now so you know uh it's it's not the most clearly not a mobile system right but i don't know it it works for me i i i love it like um this is this is like my home studio it's tailored to me and and um it's sort of like i see it as part of part of the job and uh i spend a lot of time on it you know yeah so Kind of on that note, you said that guitar is really big to your sound, and obviously that's one of the things that really got you into writing and creating. So, um, what does your guitar setup look like in your studio right now? Sometimes I, I, I hope I don't come across as like it's like oh analog is the only way to go, but <laughs> I yeah I, I just prefer um, like a, an amp and a guitar uh, or like yeah. like I, amp sims are great, whatever it's cool, but I I like. I like having that feel of, of a physical amp and, and moving air, you know, it's, it's sort of, mm-hmm. there's something about it that, that I just like, and it, I think it brings out a better performance in me personally. And, um, you know, it, it, it works for me. So my guitar setup is, I have, I, I have a whole bunch of different amps. They are, they're all in like head form. So I have like, uh, I'm just like, like, like yeah. a, uh, a deluxe reverb, like a Fender deluxe reverb. I have a, a Roland a jazz chorus. Um, I have like a couple, which in head format is actually super rare. I didn't realize it when I bought it. I was like, yeah. oh, this is like super hard to find. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I saw it pop up on reverb and I was like, buy it now immediately. You know, um, again, like I'm, I'm not like a tube guy you know but it's, it doesn't have to be like tube amp it's like i, I i'll use a solid state amp but yeah. I, I just like i like the different flavors that come with the diff- different amps so i have a i have a vox ac4 which is actually my primary amp it's super cheap actually um an ac15 i have a, a fender princeton and all of those are being essentially plugged into this uh it's essentially like a like an amp router so mm-hmm. so or amp switcher so so i i have all of that I wish I could turn a knob and switch which amp is being funneled into, you know, into the rest of the chain, which is uh, a, um, uh, it's the universal audio aux. 
They're actually yeah. a, an underappreciated utility. It's it's um it's I mean it serves multiple functions, but the the way that I use it is as a an attenuator. So you know I have multiple I have like a hundred watt amps and I have like five watt amps. So it's like it's all over the place, right? Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to have something to kind of dial it in and control it, and that is being from from the the aux. It's then going into the, uh, an isolation cap. So uh, this is for those that don't know. It's basically a, a cabinet with a like basically a speaker inside, but it's isolated, so it's padded. There's like a lot of like math that goes into this to to make sure that it's still kind of moving air like a true amp, but it's yeah. it, it, it's 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 you, you're not um you know you still get like that real amp sound. So I, I mm-hmm. live in like a condo, so I, I can't really be blaring an amp you know late <laughs> at night. Yeah, and uh and also my wife. Yeah, I'd feel bad if, if it was like super loud. So, but it has the other side effect is it has a super clean, um, sound because it's isolated. So I could be talking here. I could have my speakers on and none of that gets bled into the mic. And, uh, it's great. It's, it's it's sort of like having a direct input, but with all the benefits of an amp sound. So it's a little bit of an intense setup, but once you have it going, it's like, Oh, I want the fender today. Okay. I'm switching to the fender and that's it. Just one quick thing on the microphone. This mm-hmm. is uh, sort of a little trick that I have, you know, like the, uh, so that I, I think it's the 57. So there's, <laughs> it's sort of, it sounds crazy, but the, the SM57 um, is well regarded as one of the best. It's actually super cheap, obviously like a hundred bucks, Yeah. but w- one of the best like uh, guitar amp mics and mm-hmm. I love it. I think it's great. And, um, but so a bit of history is like uh, Shore before Shore used to be Unidyne, and um, hmm. basically when Shore became Shore and they started the more mass-produced SM57s, they, they added a transformer to protect it against. I mean, there's various reasons, but one of the things is it protects against 48 volts from phantom power, right? Yeah. So there's this one thing you can do is you can unsolder the capsule and then boil it, um, literally boil a <laughs> microphone to yeah. basically unsolid uh, like to get the glue loose so you can pull out that transformer. Uh, so you're not like boiling the microphone. You're really just boiling the transformer out so you could pull it out and, and not completely destroy your microphone, but yeah. basically pulling it out and then you, un- you solder it directly. So you gotta be really careful. You can't send phantom power to it. You're going to ruin your mic. Uh, you lose a little bit of headroom, but the sound is just, it's a little more vintagey. It's a little more seventies. And, yeah. uh, I, I just like the fact that I'm using a boiled microphone to me it <laughs> adds to the story. I don't know. Like, uh, like so, so this is more broadly speaking, but so much about the recording process to me is about the process, not about the end result. So yeah. like me, you know, using rice, you know, brown rice or white rice for a shaker and making that choice to me is hilarious and fun. <laughs> and I, I know nobody's going to care and notice, but for me, it's like, haha, I did that. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> or, or like using my, my cat's meow as a, as a snare in, in a song and like nobody ever knowing that, you know, like, yeah, it, it's that, that part of the process. That's, that's what I love. You know, obviously the end result is people enjoy it and, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, goes on to have its own life, but, but that, that part of it is what I like, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's something that I always preach on this podcast where actors always talk about like, you know, you have to love the process and it's almost like a faux pas thing to say, but I think it is really important because that's one of the few things that you can't control with music. So for you, would you say that 
being in love with the details of the process is something that has kind of always been with you or something that you've kind of come to appreciate those subtleties more so over time? I think I always I was always pretty detail oriented. I think that's actually what set me apart early on, um, yeah. because I would do these, especially early on. I would just do these like these insanely ridiculous like like string arrangements for a remix. You know, yeah. it's like nobody's doing that. Nobody's putting in that work. You know, so like for me, it was a bit self serving because it's like this is super interesting and fascinating to me as an outlet, it's a creative thing. Um, yeah. But it also had this competitive advantage where. Um, people were like, oh, he put in some effort into this, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, because, going back to that theme of like doing it for the artist, doing it for, you know, for the person, for the person that would most appreciate this. Yeah. They, they notice, you know, they're like, oh, that's interesting. Cool. You know, um, versus, I don't know, like, I, I feel like so, sometimes you can get away with doing a remix pretty, you know, without that much effort, perhaps. So, yeah, so I, I guess like I guess I always have been sort of detail oriented and motivated by that, and I mean I could certainly use um, you know sort of pre built samples and and still get a great result I think, um, but I, I would feel a bit just disconnected from it, and uh, I I just love I just love creating it from you know from nothing. Uh, yeah, I guess maybe that's the idea is like like literally blank slate starting from nothing, you know. Well, and I think that's really important, especially within electronic music because. I feel that way a lot of times when I just feel really detached from the music that I make, because if I don't have those live performance elements, the only way that I can show you it is just by hitting a space bar. Yes, yeah. But when you do have that where you can be like, Hey, I, you know, recorded that guitar or I, you know, manipulated those samples or recorded those drums. Like, I think it has a much more personal touch to it. Mm-hmm. Like I remember I, you know, spent a while dabbling in like sampling music mm-hmm. for hip hop. And it was cool, but I'm like, I have no personal touch to this. I don't feel like I did anything. I just kind of ch- yeah. chopped around a little bit of audio. <laughs> but for me, getting into guitars and synths and pianos made me feel like I enjoyed more and felt more connected. And, you know, is the music better? Who knows? But I'm having more fun with it. And that's exactly. probably going to end up in something that people can resonate with. Right, right, right. Resonate the word of the, the word of the day. Of course. But, <laughs> Uh, I feel like any music podcast is like, oh, it's like, uh. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but no, I, I, I can, I can totally relate. And again, uh, that's not a knock at all against sampling. I, I think it's a fantastic medium. It's a, a completely valid art form in its in yeah. itself, but I, I feel the same way. I, I feel a little bit detached from it when, when I do it personally. And it, it's just, uh, I, I guess at the end of the day, maybe what we're getting at is like, I, I kind of do this for myself. And I think yeah. that's sort of tied into what you were saying about like detail details and whatever. It's like, I'm really doing this for me. I, I kind of get paid for it <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but really it's like, I, I get to get up in the morning and, and be creative on, on something that I care about, I guess. You know? Yeah. And kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about finding that balance between music for yourself and for other people. I think this allows you to have fun and be playful within a style that's, you know, a bit more palatable and more mm-hmm. of a pop format. So I think it allows you to kind of have the best of both worlds, have your fun with it, but also get something that's more digestible that can mm-hmm. help you with your career growth too. Right. Where like, I, I hate for there to be a moment where it's like, Hey, we love this, but we don't <laughs> think it'll do well. You know, like, yeah, I, I, I like, but the, here's the thing is like the, the pop thing. I actually like the challenge of it. And so, I mean, I think a lot of people that probably listen to this podcast understand this. So I I feel like maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but like, I think people understand that 
pop music is very crafted and takes an immense amount of skill. It's not an yeah. easy thing. Otherwise everybody would do it. Like pop music yes. is very difficult. Um, there's a reason why, you know, it's, it's only a select few that are super successful with it. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of bad pop music too. I, I don't mean to say it's all amazing, <laughs> but, but yeah. the craft behind it is very intentional. It's like, if it's a simple melody, it's a simple melody by design. It's the hookiest thing they can come up with. So it, it's a skill in itself. And I, I think it's like, I, I like to play that game too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not shying away from that at all. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it serves a creative, um, you know, it serves a creative need, but it's also like a practical need too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I like it. I, I think it's fun to try to do that. So for all the people that are lusting over all the gear that you have in your studio, <laughs> I'm going to pitch you a question. Yeah. So let's just say I gave you laptop headphones, SM7B, guitar and amp, just kind of the essentials. And I give you a thousand extra dollars for gear to fill out your studio. Hmm. What do you feel like you would do with that thousand bucks? Huh, thousand bucks. Um, even though I went in this whole spiel about hardware, I feel like plugins would actually go further. <laughs> um, and we didn't really touch on any of this, but uh, even though I do use a lot of physical instrumentation, plugins are very much part of my workflow. More on the mixing side, though. So I I have a, a I, I love like messing up sounds. I love making them dirtier and, and more like, uh, just grungier. And, uh, yeah. So I would actually go for maybe a suite of plugins that I feel like I would perhaps get more of the vibe. And because like, like, again, I'm maybe I'm thinking too, too deeply about this, but basically like with, if if I'm working with Ableton or whatever, I mean, I could do anything with operator, you know, I could do anything with analog or any of the suite, you know, the sort of built-in plugins and compressors and all that. But what you can't do with Ableton is a lot of the sort of more interesting things like, like tape effects. I mean, there's a couple, yeah. there's a couple tools you can get close, um, you know, some tape effects or, or, uh, like there, there's a couple, um, like uh, I love, uh, good Hertz and, yeah. and Wolf compressor and, mm-hmm. uh, the wow control. I, I recently got into sketch cassette, which probably a lot of people know that already. Um, mm-hmm. I only discovered it recently, but it's like, Oh, this is cool. Uh, it emulates like cassettes. And, um, I mean, I, I guess like, do we have, are, are we talking about universal audio here? Cause I'm a little bit, <laughs> do we get well, that some, thousand do, bucks isn't going to go far yeah, if you know. need do to we, get some UA stuff in there. <laughs> do we get some UA plugins? No, maybe not. But, but th- there's a couple third party ones you could get that you could get a similar effect perhaps. I'm a little spoiled with that because I work with them, but yeah, I <laughs> but, but, um, no, I, I think the whole idea is just, uh, like for, for, for as much as I'm preaching about analog or whatever, uh, my workflow is very digital. Uh, in fact, I, maybe that's something interesting to talk about is like, I, I actually don't, um, like synths. I rarely play the keyboard. Like I've, I very rarely play like an actual physical keyboard. I program everything, but then I'll, I'll nudge it. I'll like move things off the grid. I'll, I'll sort of like mess things up to make it a little more human. Um, and then I'll run the MIDI through an analog synth and play the fa- play the, you know, the filter or the ADSR as I'm recording it in. And then I'll do multiple passes of that and then pan them, you know? So uh, I'll, for every instrument, I'll do maybe, you know, three or four passes of something with different settings and like, and then just interweave them, you know, through automation. So it's, it, it's, uh, it is, it ends up being quite digital, but always, you know, just 
it's sort of made, maybe the maybe it's just the rhythm of it that I, I want it to be precise. <laughs> yeah. But then sort of being loose with the with the faders and everything else. It's interesting, just given the fact that you kind of got your start with piano and guitar, that mm-hmm. even with that being comfortable with those instruments, you're able to get what you want out of your head by programming it in and then playing with that in the DAW. Well, so this is something I think about a lot. So uh, I, maybe this is a skill. I don't know. Maybe it's something I was born with. But basically, I, I hear these melodies in my head. Like, I can hear them. And I try to, like, sort of hone in on them and, like, okay, what's the quickest way that I can do to get that melody out of my head into, like, a physical space? Most of the time, that's through a guitar. Maybe that's I can quickly program it in Ableton. Or maybe I can just, like, quick jam it out on a piano or something. Uh, like, that. So, so it's sort of the melody is sort of intangible. It doesn't matter the instrument. This is sort of something else that I kind of alluded to earlier, but I have this, I have this method um, about songwriting. This is something I've developed over the years um, where it's going to be hard to sort of distill this, but basically I, I believe that uh, like a good song has maybe space for, you know, sort of like maybe three strong, three or four strong elements. And, mm-hmm. and when I, when I mean elements of maybe like, maybe that's something in the low end, something in the, in the mid lows, and that sort of re that sort of is somewhere in the middle that's melodic but still yeah. still is rhythmic so we'd call that a bass you know but like you know you know what i mean like uh, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be a bass it could it, I, I just like if you really abstract it away we're talking about like low end rhythm and then this sort of low mid that's sort of like the bridge in between maybe the mid range and that's really where you can you can get intense with uh like melodies you can create all this kind of interesting stuff that's yeah. where you, you, you it's you, it gives it a little bit of the chordal structure, but you can there's so much room to play around. And then I'm not even talking about vocals yet, by the way. I, I just yeah. mean like as an instrumental format. That's how I think about songs in three in three parts. So again, that that drum is like you know I stick to pretty specific formulas that that, that make sense. You know, a, a lot of the times four on the floor or or some some variation on that. You know, if you want to do something a little more hip hop, be, you know, more of a groove there, but yeah. you know, so, so that's all in the low end. And then, um, you know, the, that, that mid to low range sort of playing off of that rhythm or, or it's the same rhythm, but giving whatever, whatever the, is happening in the mid range context. So everything that's happening in the mid range can be kind of off in its own little world, as long as it still lives within that context. And maybe that's, that means like, maybe that's a chord. You could think about it that way, or maybe that's the key. It doesn't have to be. It can kind of be its own thing. I'm really sort of trying to abstract all of this stuff yeah. really to like its highest level. And because like, if you think about it from that way, the instrumentation doesn't matter. It's just the idea. And like, however you get, however you express that idea, that's ultimately what matters. And the thing is, you don't have to be limited to one instrument. You can create, you know, you can have 40 instruments doing the same melodic idea, but as long as, they're sort of cohesive and in the same world, it sort of creates this meta instrument, if you will, um, that's sort of a combination of multiple things. So again, that that's, and, and by the way, like th- this applies to, to mixing as well. So yeah. my, like my drums are very much pretty much on the low end. I don't think there's, I, 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 there's a lot of tracks that the drums don't even cross 12 K for example, you know, like a, a lot of people are like brightening up those hi-hats. I'm like, get those out of here. Like, I don't, <laughs> like I, I want, I want, yeah. I don't want them anywhere close to, to my vocal range. So, so I, I think about it from that perspective. And, um, I mean, that, that doesn't mean you can't have a little bit of high, high end in, in there, but like really make sure it doesn't get in the way. 
And obviously the the low mids, same idea, kind of keep it in that pocket. You know, maybe add a little bit of mid range to add it to give it some grit or something like that. But then the the mid range really lives again, sort of keeping it out of that maybe 15k tops, really just like filtered to that 15k range, and then uh, high passed up until I don't know maybe 400, 500, something like that. To so really give each idea its own space to play in. And then when you have vocals, vocals just live on top of all that. So vocals cut through no problem. It's like, yeah. you don't even have to worry about it. Like if you follow those rules, and again, rules are meant to be broken, but you know what I mean? Like if, if you sort of follow those general rules, if you have a vocal that lives in the, you know, I mean, the vocals obviously have a wide range, but you know, if you have them primarily in, in the, you know, 15K and up, if they have all that space to themselves, it's so chill. I mean, they just do their thing and, yeah. and, um, and just enhance the whole thing. And especially once you have harmonies sort of filter, like, uh, expanding the whole, you know, uh, stereo spectrum and all that, like the, it, it's so much room to play. And, and like when you, when you really hone in each part, um, I, I feel like that gives you so much flexibility because you're not competing, you know? Yeah. So I kind of want you to dive deeper into that idea of honing in each part. So you mentioned that earlier, this idea of honing in on simplicity. So how do you, when you're kind of taking that abstraction of what should be in those different areas of a track and actually manifesting that when you're building Mm -hmm. out a song, are you kind of consciously thinking, okay, I need to fill in something with the rhythmic low end, or are you kind of building up something bigger and just kind of seeing what you got and then stripping it down? So how does that look like to actually manifest that? Uh, it's, it's a bit intuitive. Um, I, I, I try different things. Um, a, yeah. a lot of it is kind of like building up a, a like a, 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 a couple of parts and yeah. then trying different arrangements of them. You know, I, I find I, I mute and solo things all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, okay. So like, <laughs> I, I swear this tangent's relevant, but I get so many notes from A&R people on, on remixes and they're like, add more here. I'm like, that's not what you do. Adding more <laughs> reduces the, the dynamics of a song. Like it, it's, yeah. I know it's counterintuitive, but like, like sometimes a drum and a bass is far more impactful than like 50 cents. You know what I mean? Like it's just muddying everything up. Like, but, but, to take it back, it's it's sort of this idea of simplicity and and, and efficiency, and is that is that little bass flourish really going to add that much there? Maybe not. Maybe it will. Yeah. Maybe add it one time in a song. It's probably more effective because people the next time they hear it, it's like oh, they keep waiting for it. You know that anticipation for it, and it's mm-hmm. so satisfying when it finally comes. You know, when, when I'm honing in on these parts, I, I, I'm really. I, I, I like to start it from, I, I, I listen to things on loop constantly, basically. So yeah. I'm not starting and stopping. It's just always looping. So, so I'm, I'm getting a sense of how it feels, how it flows, you know, and yeah. you can pretty, you could tell pretty quickly what's getting annoying. You know what I mean? And if that, mm. if that little flourish keeps popping up, you're like, eh, I'm getting rid of that. You know, that's, yeah. that's cool. Or maybe I'll add it before the chorus, or maybe that's a pre-chorus section or something like that. You know, it's not, but by this looping kind of this constant looping, I feel like I, I'm able to weed out a lot of bad ideas, uh, and and sort of find the good ones. And you know, like I, I talked about, um, you know, honing in on a good idea. I'll try all kinds of stuff, but mm-hmm. I'll I'll settle on one. 
I guess is my point. So maybe tying this all together to like, even from the big picture of the album of like writing a lot of ideas and honing it down to a smaller subset. I think the same idea applies to when you're writing a guitar part, you know, where you try a whole bunch of stuff and then you try things, loop them, see what works, what doesn't. Um, and then just pull out the ones that don't work or maybe use them somewhere else in the song. You know, There, there, there is room for, for changes as well. Um, yeah, it's but it, it is kind of intuitive, I guess. Like it's, it, it, I, there's there's not like a that that part gets a little more elusive. It's not so much a formula. It's more like I I could be specific, be like like hit your um you know make sure your your bass is hitting on the kicks or uh or maybe do it on, or the opposite, do it on the offbeat. Sometimes that feels good. Depends on the song. Um, but there's no real rule to it. You just kind of have to feel it out and develop those writing skills. And I, I think maybe that's perhaps where people get stuck because that just takes time. Yeah. Um, and a lot of jumping around different genres, perhaps. Yeah. It's tough. Cause I feel like a lot of people want to lean on the theory to get them where they want. But in my opinion, so much of what theory does is it trains your intuition. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, for yeah. example, like I was listening to an interview with Jacob Collier and somebody asked him about, um, a chord change in one of his songs. And he when talking about it, it was like, oh, I just thought about it in my head and was like, oh, this might sound cool. But he could also strip it down to what the theory was. So it worked for a theory yeah. reason. And he knew what the theory was, but it was that training his intuition, which led him there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kid is like, he's, yeah, yeah he's a genius. But <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's funny because like, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm not, um, I, I did study music, but I, I'm not, um, I, I can't read music. I'm not fluent at all in theory. Um, I actually, I, th- I think maybe the only real formal training I had was, uh, like as when I, when I first learned guitar, I learned with, uh, this bossa nova, this Brazilian bossa nova guy. And, yeah. and I learned a bit of jazz there. And, but even that was very different, very I still, I, I like, I kind of ignored all of it. Like I was like, ah, this isn't interesting <laughs> to me. I just like, I just like to play music, you know? So, um, I, I'm kind of maybe a little bit willfully ignorant of it. Uh, not, not that I think I, it, it wouldn't help because of course it would, but I, I'm sort of, I'm so set in my way. Sometimes it, I think it'd be hard for me to go back and relearn it from that perspective. Um, that I kind of like the loose nature of it where it's like, ah, it just feels right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> So a couple more things on production and then we'll kind of slide things away. So you've mentioned swing and groove and how important that is for you, especially getting your kind of BPM boot camp back in the day with you know, <laughs> not having to click track. So kind of to walk me through where that comes for you in your music, because, you know, a lot of it is four on the four drum patterns, but I think people underestimate how much room there is for rhythm and groove within and outside of those drums. So kind of walk me through that. Yeah, I, f- I feel like I'm on like a like a tirade against hi hats, but I, I, like, I feel like t- hi hats should be one of the last things you add. Like, like um, hi hats should come when you find the groove of the song. And so th- again, this is maybe a little bit of background, but I I played in a wedding band for for a second. I played played at cocktail parties. I played uh, yeah. I played we played funk tracks, like things like that. I played all kinds of different things, and and that got me into playing a little bit of jazz standards and a little bit of funk. And that, that sort of instilled this, this kind of non programmatic rhythm in, into me. So like that came from guitar playing as well, where it's like, ah, oh, this just feels better, a little bit loose, a little bit, a little bit off, you know, yeah. it, it just, it just feels good, you know? And I, I guess maybe I just sort of uh, through intuition, I don't know, kind of learned that early on and 
and when applying it to, to my own music today, I, I just, okay, there's the kick and snare. Kick and snare can be dead on. It doesn't matter. But everything in between is so loose. Like you could, yeah. I mean, look at Flying Lotus. I mean, you can't even figure out what, what it's doing, yeah. but it feels so good. It's mm. like, oh yeah. Um, yeah. Like that sense of rhythm uh, is is so malleable. And like the hi-hats, I feel like sometimes when you just program those hi-hats, you're like kick, snare, and hi-hats. You're like, you, then you're locked into a rhythm. There's no yeah. backtracking from that. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I love, like even on the new album, you'll, you'll find that a lot of tracks, if they have hi-hats, they're super tucked in and they're super loose. They're way yeah. off the grid. I mean, like, like tons of milliseconds off the grid, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I just like that. It just feels better. Um and uh, it, especially if, if you're kind of playing along with it, you know, um, which is sort of the, how I, I, I do a lot. Like I'll do like the drums first and then, or like maybe I'll write and I, or I'll think of an idea on guitar and then program the drums and then record the guitar to the drums to get yeah. that feel. And then once I have that locked in, I can build everything from there, you know, but mm-hmm. um, I, I don't, I don't really use groove pool or any of that stuff. It, it is very useful. Um, I have used it in the past, but these days I really just do it manually. I find that yeah. gives me so much fi- finer control over everything. And I just mm-hmm. nudge it until it feels good, you know? Because sometimes the, that, like, offhand opens uh, hi-hat on, on the snare just feels so so much better if it's a little ahead or a little behind. I, I don't know. It's, yeah, there, there's no rules with that, I think. Mm-hmm. So kind of given the way that your direction and focus for your music has shifted over the past 10, 15 years, I'm kind of curious where your head's at right now when you're walking into the studio. Obviously, you've had your kind of remix focus. You've had your original album focus. Things have shifted a little bit with COVID with you know the live music focus, and we'll probably get into that later. But kind of walk me through what your direction and goals are when you're walking to the studio right now. Huh. Well, it's, it's interesting because... I released an album during COVID. So it's like, <laughs> and it's like, well, I couldn't have planned that one better. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> we literally announced a tour on the day the NBA got canceled. So I was like, well, okay. All right. Yeah. I didn't expect <laughs> that one. But with that said, it, it, it really, it, okay. Like, like me, me and my team, like we talk about this all the time. Uh, like we really try to be as adaptable as possible, try to be nimble and, and try to sort of just, take it as it comes and like try to be as creative and, 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 and try different things. Like if, if the tour wasn't going to be a big part of it, then let's figure out something else. Maybe that's streaming, you know, yeah. like we'll talk about it in a second, but like, but, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it wasn't the best time, but it, maybe it was because uh, everybody else was like moving their albums back. I don't know why streaming went up guys. I don't know what you're thinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, uh, th- we have a captive audience that's stuck at home. It's really annoyed right now. <laughs> like, why not give them something that makes them feel good? You know. So, th- I mean, we never even considered moving it. It was like, hey, we've been planning this for six months. It's going to come out. Let's make the most of it. We did like a launch party. We did like a release party on on stream. We did a whole bunch of stuff. It was it was really fun. Like, we had a whole bunch of like guest performances. Uh, we probably made more of an impact by doing everything digitally. Uh, then, then we would have, if we had gone out and done some showcase at wherever in some random city, you know? So, so I actually think this really forced us to sort of second guess what was working, what, what wasn't. And even before COVID, we were always taking this, this album was kind of a turning point for me personally, even, even like on the business side where 
uh, I feel like on the first two albums, we did everything by the book. It was like you hire the publicist, you you go yeah. you go to radio, you do the you go through the motions, you like you know you do the radio showcases at eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like like <laughs> formulate I, for sure. Yeah, so it, so it, it was like it it never quite sat well with me, and um, I always felt like I was a product of the internet, and I, I should embrace it more, and. And to some extent I did, but the, I, there was still this thing that was like, well, this is how things are done around here. You know what I mean? Like, and it was, yeah. <laughs> and it, I just didn't, I didn't like that. And I always questioned it, even touring. Like yeah. a lot of people argue with me on this, but I, like, like is touring really an efficient use of your time? I mean, like, yes, as an addition, you know, to, to promoting an album, of course, like yeah. people go ha- have an amazing experience. They, they remember that that'll be something they remember forever. I'm, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even going to go there. Of course that's important, but as mm-hmm. like the cornerstone of your album release, like, come on, really? Like, th- yeah. like being in a physical space with 800 people, like that's your, that's your, your big push. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's this idea. It's kind of a tired old idea is like you, you build your local support and your community, you know, it's like, it just doesn't <laughs> yeah, make any yeah. sense. Like, it's like, we live on the internet now on um, whether you like it or mm-hmm. not. And, and so, so going into this album, we're like everything, First of all, we're going to take a financial approach to this, which is like how much money is coming in, how much money is coming out. Like, yeah, I'm not going to be putting money into stuff that is going to lose money. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of doing that. I did that for two albums, you know. So <laughs> we we were already questioning everything. Like literally, any idea that people brought up is like, well, how is that going to work? Like, yeah, is this generating plays? Is this uh, how how is this helping? Is this is this bringing more awareness to the project? Um, it seems like everybody else is doing this. Why are we doing this? You know, so it's like we questioned everything, and people got kind of annoyed at us. But it was like, well, you know, like if nobody's going to question this, we're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again, and nothing's going to change. Yeah, and uh, I, I feel like a lot of people did that during COVID, um, where they just like kept kept like business as usual and didn't try anything new. And and this really was a turning point for for me and my team. We were just like no, let's, let's change this. Let's do something new. And, uh, and I think the results are showing where, um, I I feel like we've had an incredibly successful campaign bigger than like a lot of the other stuff I've done for, um, a lot less money. Yeah. (laughs) I think we spent a lot less money on this album than we did on any other album. Um, and had far more impact. We did, we did like Instagram filters and like just the nature, it was kind of a funny thing. And like, people just kept sharing it. It It's like, you can't buy that kind of advertisement. You know, yeah. like we, we seeded the, the, the songs to like certain TikTok influencers or whatever, and suddenly blew up on TikTok, but well, to some extent, not like blowing up, like some yeah. TikTok stuff does, but you know what I mean? It reached mm-hmm. far more people than it did, um, before, you know, for example, like we did, uh, did a cover with, with, uh, Matthew Cohen, Hillary Duff, like, yeah. like <laughs> you can't, you know, like all this to say that we really changed our focus and, and basically the, the main point is digital first you know, and obviously everything with COVID kind of in a way helped us, you know, which is weird to say, it's obviously a terrible yeah. situation, but of where a lot of people, a lot of my friends were like, oh yeah, we'll be touring in July. I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> you're just not. Yeah. Like this is not going to come back. And not that I was some clairvoyant or whatever, but like, it just didn't, I can't imagine this coming back anytime soon. Like yeah. literally not essential large group, small spaces, like this is not coming back anytime soon. Um, as much as people love music, it's just not safe. And uh, yeah. I think we just have to sort of deal with it. 
And if anything, it's really shown a light on like how fragile the music industry and how kind of messed up it is. So, so if anything, it's just had this, uh, by the way, I can go on a rant about the music industry for like four <laughs> hours. I'll, I'll spare you, but like, but yeah, so it, 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 the whole point was let's, let's change all of this. Let's, let's question everything. Let's not do something just because some, because that's the way things are done, you know? And, yeah. and we keep being proven right because we keep doing things differently and, and people, and it's working and um, not to say that everything will work, but uh, you know, we're, pe- you know, pe- people are started to notice, I guess. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, think pieces I, I, I've done or interview pieces for, for like these magazines where people are like, Oh, you're so innovative doing live streaming. It's like, how is this innovative? <laughs> like what, what world do you live in? You know, like, yeah, like, 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 I don't know. I, I get kind of frustrated with this where the music industry is like, so uh, it, like stuck in its own head, I guess. Like they don't, don't yeah. know, they don't question anything. <laughs> totally. I had an um, interview with Steve Void, who's a runner uh, mm-hmm. who runs a record, record label called Strange Fruits. And he was even talking about for his marketing team. He's like, I don't want to hire people that have music marketing experience. Right. They're just so locked into the same things. He's like, I would rather have somebody that used to market cereal boxes because right. at least they'll be coming in with a fresh, un, um, unruined view on how to market. Absolutely. So the, just to, to riff off of that theme, like, for example, like for this yeah. album, like the, the album art was designed by like, uh, like he, he's like a, um, he designs furniture. Like, you know what I mean? Like he, <laughs> yeah. he does like 3d art and, and things like that. He's not, he doesn't do album art, you know? And, and the photographer that did sort of like these promo shots, she, she does like, um, like pr- product, uh, uh, photography for like sports brands. And, and, um, it's really artistic and interesting. It's, she doesn't do artists, you know, in, in that, in that sense, yeah. she doesn't do artist portraits. You know, we don't need another, uh, you know, <laughs> like the classic DJ photo, the hand yeah. behind the, the, you know, scratching <laughs> your neck with like looking all broody and, and, you know, so it's like, so it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, again, that whole idea of just like challenging everything. It's like, let's work with people that don't do this, that are, you know, the marketing is like not your typical thing. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. I love that. I feel like it's, you know, like taking the tried and tested things that do work, but building off of that and thinking how I can be creative and best this. And Mm -hmm. I think the same way that you're approaching building up a song, building up an album, you're infusing that in your marketing too. And it seems like you've got a great team around you that also feels the same way that can empower you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've been very fortunate with my team. I mean, you've, you've talked to them, but (laughs) yeah, we, we certainly have, uh, you know, hour long conversations every day, like talking about like, what, what can we possibly do? Um, what, one thing maybe that I'll, again, I feel, I feel like this is a sort of an important message for anybody that like doing, getting into remixes, um, sort of something that I had to power through in my career is, uh, is, uh, is to get ownership. You know, I, I yeah. don't have ownership over a lot of my old remixes. I, I basically got paid a flat fee, and I don't, I don't have any stake in it. Um, and that's starting to change now. Uh, I realize that sometimes you don't have that kind of leverage, but I, I think it's a really important message to get across because uh, just in my, just in the past six months, we've really shifted our, our approach. Which is, we used to get like flat fees plus a little bit of ownership, and now I've, I've switched where it's like I don't take, I don't take a flat fee. I just refuse. Yeah. And I just want ownership. And it's so funny because yeah. they lose all their leverage. Like uh, I was yeah. dealing with this major label recently and um, the, the fee was great. The fee was really good. I could have bought some really nice synths with that. And, uh, and, and I was like, 
It's like, no, I, 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 I don't want the money. I just, I just want ownership. I know you can give it to me. Just give me the ownership. It's, I mean, if it's, if it, I'm not asking for all of it, just give me a fair, fair share of ownership. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, we can't do this. Like, no, you can. Yeah. I know you can. <laughs> like, don't. And they're like, well, why don't you just take the money? It's like, no, give me ownership. And, and like, it ended up yeah. falling through because like, <laughs> here's the thing. It's like, that's, they, they sell you, they, they gamble, they dangle the carrot of a little bit of money in front of you because they know they can make far more of it over yeah. the long term cycle of the song. So if you're in that position, go for it. Um, and, um, that, that's something that I think is really important to instill in people that are getting into remixes and just your work in general, like get ownership. It's so important. Um, don't be like me where <laughs> a lot of my early work, I don't know. Cool. So a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. So first off, we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out to give them the best chance of success moving forward with music? You know, I, I, I go back and forth on this because it's, it's, it's a very tricky question that sometimes requires a specific answer, but this specific answer isn't that useful because it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it may not make sense for most people. Maybe it makes sense for like one person, but it's hard to generalize this. So sometimes when I give an answer to this, it's somewhat vague, but I think Mm -hmm. it's in it, in its essence, it is very important. So Again, t- going back to this early thing, uh, in my case, it was remixes, where it's like I, I discovered this idea of, you know, catering to the artist, being being something or or, or being c- creating something that's your own, carving out your own niche, uh, cre- like separating yourself f- from the crowd. Sometimes can be harder to get noticed at first, but over the long term, I think you'll create um, you'll it, it sort of weeds out a fan base as well, where you'll get people that like what you do and it's who you are as opposed to this idea of sounding like Dylan Francis or whatever. And, you know, and there's already a Dylan Francis, we don't need two, you know? And, and so, so this idea, I don't mean to, (laughs) nothing to do with Dylan Francis, for example, but, but you know what I mean? Like, um, I I feel like sometimes in EDM specifically, not not to throw it on the bus, but I I feel like a lot of it can sound very samey. And, and I I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity electronic music is so rich. Like there's so much space to be creative and do your own thing. And yeah, I mean, in, in recent years, it's definitely like exploded too. So it's not like, I mean, I feel like there was like a couple of years where it was, it was all just sounding like Steve Aoki, but, but, yeah. but, <laughs> but basically like now I, I feel like this idea of finding your own sound, being yourself, not only do you personally feel better about it, it you'll, you'll like, you'll enjoy it. Um, but I, I think it, it's really the secret to longevity in this business. Yeah. And, and I, I, that's really the best advice I can give to people. And I know that's like super vague and it's like hard to be like, well, I don't know what that is. It's like, well, you have to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. It, 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 nobody can tell you what it is. You have to sort of find it. And, uh, maybe it takes a lot of trial and error and whatever, but it's, it's, you know, you gotta, you just gotta do it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you did that for the first 10 years before you got your first remixes. You right. were experimenting yeah, yeah. with all these different styles. You found what it is about creating and writing that resonates with you. And then we're able to present that in a way to an audience that has helped you get this career that you've had for so long. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and again, like I, I, I feel like it's a superpower at this point because like, uh, as long as I like it, as long as I'm happy with it, it's a pretty safe bet that my fan base will like it too. You know what I mean? Like yeah. th- there's not, there haven't really been many situations where people are like, Oh, I don't really like that one. You know? 
Um, yeah. <laughs> for the most part, it sort of weeded out an audience that already likes me for who I am, as opposed to like, it's like, oh, I wish you did more stuff like you used to. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, I mean, it's important to change over time too, but you know, it's it's a balance. Cool. So everybody should go check out your album, Boy, and check out your streams on Twitch, especially since a lot of the audience here is going to be producers. But outside of that, what do people have to look forward from you over the next few months? Yeah. Um, so, well, I guess maybe just to quickly talk about the streams, because I, I think I'm doing something a little bit yeah. different. Um, I, I, I've been doing... Uh, I mean, maybe some of the producers will appreciate this. So basically, I've taken like 12 years of, you know, 12 or 13 years of remixes. I've yeah. stemmed them out. So I have stems for everything. Uh, I actually tuned, I took all the major key ones and I tuned them all to C. <laughs> <laughs> and I threw them in a massive grid. And um, I basically created this system where I'm able to pick and choose different samples that more or less will work together and i'm able to sort of improvise like endlessly essentially for like yeah. four hours at a time <laughs> and uh you know I, i've created all these kind of systems and and uh i mean if you, if you come watch the stream I, I can definitely explain it more in depth it's, it's kind of weird to talk about it without being able to see it but basically mm-hmm. i'm able to i have very fine control over the music being played and i can sort of just bring it down talk to the chat for a while and then bring it up and go in and launch into a completely new sort of meta remix that's like a remix of a remix of a remix of with a vocal of something completely different. Um, yeah. And and it's always different every single time. So it sort of sat, satisfies that need for me to sort of improv, but also, you know, has a couple of familiar sounds and, and a couple of familiar songs. And it, it's been so much fun. And that was sort of my take on, on live streaming. Because like I can't yeah. just perform four hours at a time you know what i mean like it's, it's like <laughs> yeah. three times a week like that's a lot and um so I, I had to find a middle ground that worked for me so yeah definitely come come check that out um and as far as like what i'm what i'm up to now i mean i i think i'm still coming off of the album so i the streams have definitely taken a lot of my time i've recently recently been playing with a lot of kind of new technology stuff hmm. um with uh I mean, a lot of people think crypto and, and think about like currency, but it's, it's not that. So it's sort of, sort of like a fan club type of a thing with crypto um, where uh, sort of if you participate in the community, you get these tokens that give you sort of ownership in the community. And, um, you know, you get to vote on like what we do with the community and like um, you can, you know, kind of tip each other. If somebody creates a game or something like that, you can sort of participate. It's, it's, it's an interesting project and something that I'm sort of diving into now, which I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's, think of it as a rewards program, basically. Um, air, okay. Airline miles for artists, if, if you want to <laughs> think about it that way. Uh, it's a lot more than that, but you know what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm kind of doing that. And uh, just yesterday, or yeah, I, I, I released, um, I'm playing this this stuff called NFTs, which it's called, it stands for non-fungible token, but that's kind of a terrible name. Um, really, it's it's scarce digital art. So um, it's it's some like for art collectors, basically people that buy, um, you know, video art, things like that. So where, where you essentially, uh, I've been working with, with actually the guy that did the album art as well. So we worked on this collaborative project, just like, just like a 30 second video, um, where I wrote the music and he did the visuals and it's, it's really just kind of a mood. It's not like, yeah. it, it's certainly not for everybody, but, it, but it, the, the idea is just to create sort of an art piece and, and auction it and it's scarce. There's only one, uh, and it's already sort of 
people are already outbidding each other and <laughs> this whole like, thing that's <laughs> happening. But it's, it's kind of a fun experiment in scarcity. And um, yeah, I, I did this uh, cassette tape recently, which actually, funny enough, became the most expensive cassette of all time, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, crypto is wild. People, people yeah. are crazy. Uh, I love it, though. Like, I, I just love the whole community. Um, and, and the whole idea was to how do you price scarce goods? So like, uh, you know, limited merch, like people usually just set a price, right. And mm-hmm. then they sell out, you know? So, so the whole idea is to allow a market to, so where people can buy and sell it first. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of speculators that get in there and buy and sell it and try to make money or whatever, but usually it lands at a price. Right. And, and then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then after a couple months, you could redeem it and actually get the cassette. Um, so we had this crazy thing where it started at $20 and went up to $4,800. <laughs> <laughs> Someone unexpected, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, I did not expect that. So like <laughs> people went wild with it. And again, just sort of, uh, that's sort of been what I've been doing. I usually take a while in between albums to sort of regain my thoughts and think about a new idea and like what, what to, I, I like to take my time with albums and let it digest a bit. Um, a lot of people kind of jumped into writing again with COVID, but I just felt like I'm not not feeling particularly in in that mood. You know, I, I yeah. just <laughs> off of the album, like didn't make sense. So, um, sorry, long winded answer, but yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing on doing working on now, I guess. Awesome. Sweet. Well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can find RAC's music and everything he's up to in the description of this podcast. So go check that out. Is this podcast just about over? Andre, it's been great chatting with you. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) 